You're listening to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts, bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how-tos, and so much more. This is The Final Straw Radio, a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Salagi land in southern Appalachia. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized. Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312 on the Channel Zero Network. Whether you are anarcho-curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to channelzeronetwork.com to find out more. Hello, and welcome to the Milwaukee Lit Supply Podcast. My name is Ty, and I'm the host of the podcast. We are recording on the land of Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Potawatomi, and other overlapping tribal groups and identities. On this podcast, we talk about one of the radical zines from the Lit Supply catalog each month. It is July, and this month we are going to be discussing colonization and decolonization, a manual for indigenous liberation in the 21st century by ZigZag. If you would like to contact the author for presentation help, as you can use this zine for a series of classes on colonization and decolonization, you can email zigzag at zig underscore zag 48 at hotmail.com. With me today are two volunteers who help run the Lit Supply. Before we get into the zine, can you both introduce yourself, your pronouns, and anything else you'd like to share about the work you do? Yeah, my name is Ben. I'm used to he, him pronouns, and I do uh, organizing work with uh, the Milwaukee Lit Supply, uh, Abolish MKE, and uh, Prisoner Advocacy with Forum for Understanding Prisons. Great. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Elsa. I use she, her pronouns. I live in Milwaukee, and I get mad about things and try to do organizing organizing with uh the the lit supply uh abolish mke and then just generally yelling at cops nice so we chose this particular zine this month because it's july and the fourth of july is the holiday where we celebrate america america we sure love america don't we folks and so we uh america is we're a actually settler colonial state hey that's spoilers ben we'll get into it uh let's let's build up there's a whole presentation we're doing here no so uh we we chose all of these podcasts in the schedule at the beginning of the year and i think we all kind of decided that after doing the may imagining a world without police we would want to keep it really light and discuss thousands of years of colonization and uh death and rape of indigenous tribes so that's what we're here today to talk about great yeah all right, so let's get right into it. Um, our first question today is just to get us listeners right in on what colonization is. So, Elsa, can you tell us, according to the zine, what is colonization? 
Absolutely. Uh, so the zine specifically describes colonization or colonialism as the practice of invading other lands and territories for the purpose of settlement and or resource exploitation. And then it further breaks it down into four categories or stages of recon, invasion, occupation, and assimilation. So when I, I think about uh, colonization and what I think the zine is really good about doing is describing colonization as an interlocking tactic by colonizers uh, of imperialism, like I said, uh, the resource exploitation, capitalism, racism, uh, any of the isms we get mad about on a day-to-day basis that are used to exploit and hurt people and to continually funnel wealth and uh, luxury up to a small group of people. I think it's important to also recognize that it's an ongoing and uh, currently present process, not something that happened in the history and like a discrete period that ended and we can feel regrets about, but rather something that is still happening. And I hope that we can, well, I know that we're going to be talking about ways that it is manifesting right now here and um, that it can be fought back against. Does anyone have a favorite like anti-colonialist song? Because this kind of gets me mad. I think it's a, there's some really good art out there about it. I do not have a favorite what is yours? Like, what is There's your... a song by uh, that I listen to every time I'm about to go to a protest or any action. Uh, it's called Luau by a band called Drive Like Jehu. And it's uh, about the struggle for liberation in Hawaii by indigenous people. Uh, and the chorus is something, something. Uh, wipe the last Howley the fuck off our turf. And it just gets me really excited. So Dope. Yeah. Love it. Uh, do, like, Ben, what is, can you tell us what your interpretation of colonialism is i mean yeah i mean just that the uh stage of western colonial european history that really kicked it off but uh it is preceded that but i think when i when i think of colonialism i think a lot about like the age of mercantilism or the great expansion and the where the western european powers are like spreading all over the world and taking everything they can all over the place and setting up all these different forms of um, imperialism, like taking imperialism from like the Roman Empire idea of imperialism, where one country spreads across the land and owns things and like becomes the dominant force and the emperor or whatever. Colonialism seems like a much more diverse array of exploration and different forms of domination that are kind of custom made for each different encounter that the Europeans had in order to whatever they could do to get control in that space. And it has, it came with industrialism and this great resource expansion that created in many broad and subtle ways, the world that we all live in now. And that is careening towards like collapse and destruction. Yeah, and I mean, like, so thinking about it, the Roman Empire was a pretty early on one, but in general, we talk about colonization as a European um, construct, but it was also, like, utilized, this pro- that process of that Elsa described of, like, uh, recon and then exploitation, maybe them missing one in between, but... Recon, invasion, invasion, occupation, assimilation. There you go. Those four words. Like, that, that has been done by multiple different like um, empires over over time and in different parts of the world, but more predominantly and to the worst degree from European 
colonies and uh, under the like name of Christianity most often or mm-hmm. us- using the religion of Christianity to like assimilate those people most often. Yeah, that's like when I went into hyperdrive and shaped the world that we currently live in in fundamental ways. So the zine actually uh, argues that the first example would be the Egyptian culture uh, and the way that they took over indigenous tribes of northern Africa mm-hmm. uh, and then spread to mi- modern Middle East and things like that. Uh, and then, of course, the next one they jump into is the Greeks and then the Roman Empire uh, to the point where they argue in the zine that the Roman Empire maybe never ended in the way that their influence still lasts throughout Europe. Um, although I think one of the critiques we had of this scene, and I know Ty really wanted to talk about it, was that it is very Eurocentric, and not to deflect and say that Europeans aren't responsible for a lot of the shit in colonization, uh, but there are other examples in the Philippines and things. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was one thing I was going to just like interject a bunch, was like, oh, in the Philippines. <laughs> like China, Japan, um, those two larger empires that had had already been doing this in the Philippines, but it really wasn't, it didn't take as as strongly until the Europeans came along and brought Christianity, and that was Spain. And they, the Philippine Islands, so-called Philippine Islands, were sort of held by the Spanish Empire for nearly 300 years before they just got t- uh, sort of like handed to the United States. It was like, hey, we, we, we got control of these people. Here you go. Um, but yeah, so I'm probably going to be interjecting a lot of Filipino uh, history into this as much as I can throughout our discussion. So get ready, people who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Langston Kerman, uh, colonization is a bitch because you meet uh, an Asian person, you're like, how the fuck are you a Sanchez? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like that's like a thing. Um, um, if we want to talk about Canada real quick, we're not always so. Uh, we try to be really topical with these in the, the month, and like we said, we picked this because of July Fourth. Uh, July first is also Canada Day, and uh, in the news this morning, we are recording on the first of July, which would be Canada Day. Uh, there is a movement and trending of hashtag Cancel Canada Day. Whoop whoop. Um, which is pretty exciting. It seems like a lot of uh, politicians up in Canada. I won't speak to that specifically because we're not from there, but I do understand uh, the legacy of Canadian exploitation and the arguments that there's really nothing to celebrate in Canada for what they're doing with Indigenous people there currently as we speak. Um, There is one thing to celebrate, and that's, I think, a total of seven churches have, Catholic churches have now been burned in British Columbia, so... Pretty dope. Yeah, and that's all in response to the like failure of the truth and reconciliation process and the the fact that people carried that forward and started finding these mass graves of children from indigenous schools. And that is the they found uh, a thousand bodies in an unmarked grave yeah. in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few days ago. Right. Seven churches in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty dope. But yeah, like so um for our listeners we i think we will try to do a little bit of a discussion on like how the process of colonization has worked in different parts of the of the world um but get ready because our most favorite part is the decolonization so tune in for that in quite a bit later (laughs) some minutes (laughs) so yeah like um 
I guess I'll go back to our questions here. In the history of colonialism section um, in the zine, it says, quote, the Greeks were the main transmitters of civilized culture into Europe based on both Egyptian and Mideast models. The Greeks, southernmost in all of Europe, were strategically located to serve just a role. Prior to this, southern Europe was inhabited by tribal peoples. This history tells us that colonization results from a society's culture, not its racial or biological background. This culture, based on expansion, control, and exploitation, arises from civilization. So what is the zine saying about civilization and how Europe came to dominate the world? I mean, Europe really codified colonialism as a and colonization as a process for exploiting resources. Uh, the way they did that, I think, defined these steps that we we continue to go back to. You know, with Columbus, he comes in, he recons. He specifically writes in his journal that uh, the people are friendly and would be very easy to make slaves of. Uh, he returns back, you know, after only having three ships the first time, comes back with thousands of conquistadors to uh, take everything by force, even though the other options were trading and friendly that the indigenous people were willing to make that step. Uh, the constant escalation is uh, a mark of European colonialism. Uh, they begin to occupy and just kill people off, and of course, eventually assimilation with the schools that Ben talked about. Yes. And in the Philippines, this happened the exact same way. So like Spanish explorers came and were like, oh, dang, there's so much awesome resources here. There's spices, gold, uh, delicious things like palm oil and um, home handmade artifacts, sugar, like all this types of really dope things. Indigo was like huge there. And they were just like, sweet so the king of spain will have lots of things if we just can take over and assimilate these people into what we need and that just like went par for the course exact textbook description of that process of colonization the assimilation happened primarily through conversion to catholicism um and one of my favorite uh, books it is called so if anyone wants to do some further historical reading this is one of my favorite books on the history of the philippines it's titled the philippines and the filipinos by carmen guerrero nakpil and she's dope as hell she reads um she sort of writes all of these all of these chapters are compiled from um she had a thing in a newspaper what is that called column yeah, a column in the in the newspaper and um, in like Manila Times, I think it was called. And so like these are compiled over several years of her writing this column um, and they're all told as like stories. So that's um, just like one of the ways that decolonization occurs is like through tell- storytelling and retelling of the history of what happened. So if you would like to hear and read through the history of the Philippines in that format, um, really recommend that book. But one of my favorite like things, I actually gave this book to my dad, so I don't have it anymore, But um, and I can't quote it, but this, this really awesome section where she's talking about, um, or there, there, there's a story of how the Philippines were Filipino people, one of the tribes was, which there are like 7,000, 14,000 of, um, one of the tribes was really like having, or struggling to assimilate to Christianity and they were being told like hey you know if you 
die and you're Christian, you can go to heaven. Isn't that great? And the the tribes were like, uh, no, see, if if I die and I go to heaven, that means I'm going to be stuck in heaven with you guys and you are killing all our people. So I'd rather not do that. Thank you very much. <laughs> I just thought that was like a dope realization. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, that was very swiftly replaced. And now we see the Philippines as like a predominantly Catholic um, society in, in the colonized effort. Um, it's really sad to see like the depth and breadth of how this how well colonization works speaking so. of of uh catholicism in in the philippines and then the echoes of colonialism and how that affects people now so uh three years ago the methodist church voted there was a council of all of the uh, leaders from all over the world to say whether or not gay people should be recognized as an institution in the methodist church uh, and that motion failed, and they were repudiated. Uh, there was a lot of talk about like ah, the old white men, but overwhelmingly the it was the uh, eastern and global southern nations who came to vote and say that that was not something that they had chosen to recognize. And that is not to say that that's good or to say that that reflects the value of indigenous cultures in that area, but that the echoes of colonialism and American you know, westernized purity. Uh, still flows in those places into a very dangerous way. And we're seeing like LGBTQ people across the globe um, persecuted in a way because of the echoes of this colonialism in Christianity. Sure. I think it's interesting. I remember, I mean, you're just reminding me of when I was in Ecuador for um, the International Conference on Penal Abolition. We did a little bit of tourism and went to some churches and places. And I'm reminded of a story where... Um, in order for those Catholic churches to get established and um, the priests like avoided getting killed by the local indigenous people by being okay with putting like a sun above the cross. And so they would tell, they would be like, yes, God, sure, the sun is like above Christ and in order to like, so all the churches down there have this unique thing of a sun and that was to appease and like, convince the local people there that their beliefs are valid in this way but ultimately um they're aligned with christianity yes, yes. you so just don't was, know the whole story yep <laughs> so just the different tricky ways in which like these relationships that they, i'm sure some of those priests probably considered what they were doing to be cooperation and equal or whatever but they're never actually equal and they don't lead to like an equal result but rather to either extermination or assimilation yeah and uh in the philippines uh, <laughs> i'm just gonna keep going back sorry everyone but like yeah so this is my my greatest understanding of colonization um and the practices of it but in the in the philippines like that has played out into like i don't know almost daily that, that like celebrations and stuff that the that the Catholics were just like yeah no totally you're like myth there's tons and tons like volumes of myths and mythology in Philippine indigenous culture and like the way that the Catholics sort of sort of tried to do the same thing was like oh yeah no that's totally the same as our creation story and blah blah and so like the traditional Philippine like so-called Filipino like culture is to celebrate 
generally everything <laughs> because there was an abundance of everything on those islands and they never had the, like subsistence living was just always there was hardly ever a need to um to to go out and stock food or stockpile anything so it was just always there like just go up a tree and get it um so like the cel the amount of celebrating that occurred before colonization was ample um and then the catholics like assimilated the the peoples into their culture by just like adopting new celebrations and turning them into catholic uh catholic celebration days I wipe away my past, trauma of my history My ancestors walking with me, delivering my legacy I will remember where I come from and who I am I am indigenous, my blood is spilled on the sand They try to steal my language to erase my past Couldn't strip me of my culture, it became my path Mexica que hoy es tiempo unir Los pueblos de todo Aslan Los rezos que mi gente se recuerdan de donde viene Mexico Tenochtitlan I am not running away, loving, loving on the way My generation is the way, rise with the tide, we ride in the way I am not running away what are some examples of historical colonialism here in Milwaukee? So I did a very brief uh, history of Milwaukee, and this is white man's history. Um, so it is mythological. Um, <laughs> the first white man to step foot on the land that is now Milwaukee was Robert LaSalle, according to white people anyway. Um, he was a fur trader and explorer. Um, and, but it wasn't, and that was in 1679. It wasn't until 1795 that fur traders established like a permanent post in this location. Um, Jean-Baptiste Mirandou and Jacques Vieux, um, uh, set that up. Jacques good, Vio. Good French pronunciation yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Jacques Vio uh, married into the existing indigenous tribes there, um, had 12 children, but also had a white wife uh, whose daughter, Josette, married Solomon Juno, who was another explorer. And we, Juno Town is one of the, like the three uh thing three neighborhoods or communities uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah that became um milwaukee so that's kind of like that that slow integration you know they were here they were exploring they were bringing things to the indigenous people i'm sure this history leaves out the you know smallpox blankets that they also brought mm -hmm. uh, it leaves out and it only talks about the indigenous people who like married into and created this this matisse or mixed uh community of explorers or white people colonizers who are intermarrying with indigenous people and creating a, a different kind of community um there are certainly indigenous people who were also resisting at that time and that history is uh, largely erased yeah um i want to go back in time because so, like we ha uh, every everybody knows magellan ferdinand magellan it's not like his actual name but this is like english version of the name or whatever um that dude supposedly s circumnavigated the the world um, um but that's not true hundred like it's like about a hundred days into his voyage he died Gr gruesome death by none other than the filipino people Hooray. um so like his circumnavigation of the world is a total falsity um his like troop i guess or whatever like 
technically circumnavigated the world, but it was like after he was beheaded. So what happened was he, um, they like made it to an island and they were like, oh, dope, we can totally take over this island. And the people on the island were like, fuck no. They had already like, exp- there were, were, were other clans that had already like met with um, Spaniards and stuff like that. And had, and were, were totally cool with Magellan and his groups. But this one group was like, F you suckers. And they banded together with some other groups and they beheaded him on the beaches. And like, basically just imagine a bunch of heavily clad and armored Spaniards trying to get up these giant volcanic hills and they're covered in jungle and shit. And people just like popping up out of nowhere, just being like, yeah. And, um, that's actually what happened. So what I, what I pulled, a quote that I pulled was they left only one ship with 18 survivors limping home. Um, the battle took just one hour and Magellan was dead and nearly like 250 of their other crewmen, boat crewmen, um, also fucking dead. So that's like one of the, um, coolest and oldest, um, Resistance efforts from of the Philippines that happened on April twenty seventh, fifteen twenty one. So this April we had just celebrated the five hundred year anniversary of fucking murdering that guy. <laughs> and yet he got credit for circumnavigating the globe. We all heard about him in fourth grade when we were taught about the Great Exploration Period. All of this shit. And I mean, I think that's one of the ways in which colonialism and capitalism are so intimately tied together. And this idea, this logic of, I own this company, I am the the entrepreneur, the job creator, the explorer, the colonizer, the, you know, the person who uh, gets the credit and gets to dominate based on all these other people's labor, which is largely erased, and then also the resistance and the people who don't want to do that labor also are erased. That still happens today. I mean, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. I think an easy example is like Jeff Bezos is Amazon, but now that erases all the workers in Amazon or uh, Stanley Kubrick, the auteur filmmaker, but there were 200 people on that set. So we don't talk about them. Uh, <laughs> I, I, just capitalism, colonialism, there's so many stages. I think that's weird. I think we would be remiss to not uh, at least briefly mention slavery in this. Uh, though zine itself specifically refers to it as a colony within a colony. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's the liberal talking point of we're all immigrants. And then, of course, indigenous people say, no, we're not. And then uh, further, if you, you there's a growing movement for black people to say, no, we're not. Uh, we, we didn't choose to come here. We were, you know, of course brought here forcibly and so uh the repeated attempts to build their own culture uh and then being stricken down stricken down of course um is still happening today largely but the the slave revolts are also a big part of a decolonial effort like you were talking about in and we'll we'll continue to talk about later so yeah this seems like a good as time as any for a quick break to hear from our advertisers currently still us The Milwaukee Lit Supply is a project distributing radical literature in the community and across fences into Wisconsin prisons. If you would like to learn more about our project, get involved, or come on our podcast, go to our website at mkelitsupply.com. You can follow us on Instagram at mkelitsupply, and even better, is donating to support the work that we do. 
Go to patreon.com slash mkelitsupply to become a monthly donor. You can also make a one-time donation via PayPal at mkelitsupply. I think to to talk about, uh, to bring it back to the idea of holidays, that we, like, the mythology um, that we celebrate about America or Canada with Canada Day and the the myths. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I, I want to try to trouble or question is, like, there's this effort to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, which is rad because resisting Columbus Day and like using Columbus Day as a like uh, time to resist and fight back is an awesome idea. But I think that there are probably some people who participate in that who are like satisfied with holidays in a way or like want to replace the mythology. And, you know, as a white person, descendant of white immigrants uh, who have definitely benefited from settler colonialism in this country. Um, it's hard for me to be critical of that, but at the same time, like, I don't think America should be recognizing uh, holidays to celebrate the things that America tried to exterminate. Or like Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. Like, that just, like, I doubt that Harriet Tubman wanted to be on U.S. currency, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that, like, even Juneteenth being nationally recognized, like, it's there should be like if we're going to continue to have this thing called the United States of America, it should acknowledge its history for sure. But I would rather we just don't have this thing called the United States of America, personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. Elsa, you wanted to bring up apartheid, particularly. Uh, absolutely. So, apartheid is obviously uh, most directly linked with South Africa, and that is covered in the zine. But it's not something I'm intimately familiar with beyond that. Um, one of the critiques of South Africa in the zine specifically is that these laws are a step four of the uh, four-step process we keep talking to, which is more of assimilation and less of actually restoring power to indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, apartheid is still a... Uh, it, it wasn't that long ago. It's still happening in that territory. Mm-hmm. Um I think a more modern example, of course, is Palestine, which we'd be remiss not to bring up, especially with current events. So, uh, of course, with apartheid, it's the genocide of people, and that's obviously the loss of life is the biggest tragedy. But alongside that, in an apartheid and then in a genocide, you see the, in assimilation, the destruction of culture. It is a, a very white supremacist idea to say that and the zine discusses this that when europeans came they brought culture and that everything's better now because of the culture we brought but there's no way of knowing how amazing things would be if uh these tribes indigenous tribes all over the world were just left their own devices and, and what would they have built what would that culture is something that should be mourned and there's a way in which like the mourning of that culture, like the lost culture is also a myth that actually serves colonialism okay. and like genocide and white supremacy. The idea that like the last Indian has like, and it's, it's not true. There is no last Indian, you know, there are people who continue to live and continue to exist and live in this state of paradoxical, like survival of this extermination and this uh, cultural conflict. 
Um, there's a, I remember reading about um, this guy, Gerald Vizignor, who wrote about the psychology of trying to be a survivor after this. And, and I think that feeds into a lot of the, you know, uh, Native Americans fall on the bottom of many social problems, the isolation on the res, the trauma of surviving a genocide, and the cultural uh, trauma that people experience uh, leads to alcoholism, leads to drug abuse, low literacy rates, all of these social problems, um, violence against women. And then, and then the white supremacist culture turns around and blames the indigenous people for that and says, you know, look, they were, they were savages from the start because look at how they treat each other now. And first, it's not an accurate depiction of how they treat each other now. It's a stigmatizing, villainizing Take depiction of how savage. they treat each other. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but secondly, it is a response or... Um, you know, failed coping mechanisms and a trauma response to the violence that the white supremacist culture has done to them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, being a prison abolitionist podcast and a prisoner support project, I think that um, completely relates to the, the way in which incarcerated people are treated, um, stigmatized, blamed for the problems that they're experiencing, even as the system forces them into those problems yeah and like even like just the individual problems that surface from that oppression those those states of oppression like are exactly the same the zine talks about alcoholism post-traumatic stress disorder health issues like all of these things those are very much similar issues that p prisoners um experience as well um i wanted to talk a little bit about breach i'm sorry can we, I, I want to put a pin on oh, yeah. uh, a bow on the point about prison. So just to be as clear as possible, um, we, we talk about, um, we're the prison abolitionist podcast. We're talking about this specifically. Uh, would you go so far as to say that prisons are a tool of colonialism? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, Wisconsin, and to, to always bring it back to what we're living in here, Wisconsin's the, the second highest uh, state for disparity of incarceration of uh, indigenous people. Yeah. I think after Oklahoma. <laughs> um, we're also up there at the top of disproportional incarceration of black people. Um, and so like the histories behind those stats, I think are important to recognize that like mm -hmm. there is an ongoing process of pushing people onto onto reservations, taking children from their families, trying to kill the Indian to save the man. Um, in people, these like forced assimilation and extermination processes that people go through. And for black people, the same thing, you know, people being brought here on slave ships, going through the Middle Passage, then uh, surviving through civil war, and then the failure of reconstruction, the Great Migration North, ending up here where they're not welcome either, um, and where they continue to be an excluded and marginalized class who are always used for their labor, but pushed to the margins and then blamed for um, the consequences that live life on the margins, like brings as social problems. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason why this scene came to my attention and, and possibly how it got to the point where we chose this one for this was that 
uh, we started looking at zines that have been translated into Spanish and uh, the ability to get that there. So in 2018, this zine was translated by Warrior Publications into uh, or into Spanish, and so that's part of our catalog also to talk about. Um, and part of that also was to connect with the uh, speaking of the disparities and racial disparities. Uh, the Hispanic population doesn't make up a overwhelmingly sizable portion of Wisconsin, but it is not reflected in our prisons because uh, DOC has demarked people uh, of Hispanic origin to white, uh, which is something that they use to prop up the uh, look at. No, it, it's closer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, and just to go off of that, the fact that we go like the stage of colonialism is like we genocide people we kill as many of that population as we can especially women and children um the means of reproducing those cultures and then we imprison them and so that's what exactly what we have seen in um wisconsin and that's what happens the world around Uh, i wanted to bring up gabriella silong um she was one of the women who led for her a brief four months after her husband died in 1763 um, independence movement for the Ilocano people. That's one of the um, tribes that is most rich through my own blood. Um, So she's like a um, warrior woman who um, sort of led in in indigenous resistance to colonization, um, at least on the island of Luzon in the Philippines in the 1700s. Should we then jump into decolonization, or do we have more to say about the effects of colonialism? Let's go for it. We're tired of being sad. <laughs> the exciting part. Pull up to the capital with murder plans. Sign the constitution with some bloody hands. Fuck your business plan. It's our people's land. Uh, so the zine uh, ends with the last four to five pages talking about um, decolonization. And there are some methods that they use to prop up this idea. And one of the things that they say um, is to take the the warrior tradition back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that that was a really cool thing, specifically because you had talked about this woman in the Philippines. So, yeah, Gabriela uh, Silong. Not to say to paint too broad of strokes with all, and I don't believe the zine does a good job doing that, but the warrior tradition is that the people defending these cultures are um, people who sacrifice a great deal, uh, do not allow themselves to assimilate. And it's like that song, the Parliament song, the uh, free your mind and your ass will follow. <laughs> There's a big push to... Uh, to free your mind and then you know be ready, prepared, know what you're up against because it's not the same as, as a physical struggle so much as the principalities and powers of the present day. Totally. Um, let's give a little bit of clarification or um, understanding for the audience. So like the we understand now the process of colonization and the process of decolonization is taking taking that, um, that system and reverting back, but um, not just to say that like, oh, we are going to allow power to these people, um, to like cultures and things like that, but more so to like reverse the effects of colonization on um, these cultures. And so allow those cultures to flourish in their own space where they should have been and totally erase the effects of colonization. 
Um, does anyone have anything else to add to that? Because like the the alternative approach that has been taken by like liberals Everywhere. in the U.S. government or whatever is to like set up tribal governments to like right. create the white uh, government systems and democracy in on the res's land, um, which produces problems uh, in in and of itself. And even worse, like in the Philippines, we've seen so in 1898, Philippines were were um, handed over to the United States, and then. In, took all the way to 1946 for the U.S. to say, oh, we're giving it back. But that wasn't like a process of decolonization at that time. And like what we have seen since then has been just like regime after regime after regime of people that are Filipino. But that does not take us back to the indigenous culture and way that way of life that was there was present there before. It's just a different form of still shitty government ruling I mean, we the the power structure. There's a pyramid of power um, in the zine. That power structure still exists, and that's what's really like sad about the Philippines is that like yeah, we're just continually living in in a colonized version of Filipino occupation of those lands. Are you saying Duterte is not the ideal? Filipino state or presence? Or? <laughs> Are you joking? Yes. yes <laughs> One thing to note about that is like, yeah, um, the Philippines have like surpassed many and many and continue to surpass other countries in the uh, level of counter resistance, like pro- problems or uh, um, military stifling out of the, the those resistance um, acts they I think last year the total they, their total um, number of eco defenders killed reached 69 mm-hmm. which is almost a world it, it's up there as like one of the highest like world uh, numbers of for one country of of the murder of eco defenders roughly a quarter of the entire um, world mm-hmm. um, of deaths. And so that's why when we say that like genocide is an ongoing process, the people who refuse to adopt white culture and white ways and who continue to try to preserve the land and to continue to use the land in the ways that are not necessarily historical, but which their culture wants to use the land. I don't think we, we, we again, don't want to like romanticize what used to be happening and say that we want to go back to those traditional ways necessarily, but rather that people um, from these cultures can evolve in different directions. And it is uh, scientifically documented, which is itself a bullshit white colonizer concept of science. But like even within those those standards, it, it's observed that native people having control of land is the best way to preserve the environment. And so we have all of these like white environmentalists um, who come in and like researchers who come in and say, oh, you know, we have to preserve this land. And that means taking it out of the control of the people who are living there and the local people. Um, but actually, many times, the people who are living there and the local people actually are better at preserving the land. Um, of course, there's also the corporations come in and buy out those local people in order to destroy the land. Mm-hmm. And so the real problem is not that we need some savior institution or like the academic researchers to come in and save the land or the United States government to save the land. We just need to stop the corporations from trying to take the land from people and trying to buy people out to get access Mm -hmm. to the land and let the people who 
like distribute autonomy and control of land. Yeah, and I think like that's why I've got, gotten really excited because anarchism has like flourished, started to grow in the Philippines, and like not to say that indigenous resistance has not been happening for hundreds of years, but that like it's now taking a more um, autonomous sort of note or uh, um, fashion. The the to go back to what you were saying though, the zine does like um, highlight that like rejecting of white culture and white um those powers like uh for instance television and these constructs that are from white capitalism you know is is a start to that decolonization process and getting back to where you want to be as an indigenous culture and i think that that is like a strong thing that has happened in in the philippines and um it's really exciting like I just want to go back to another celebration day. So um, back in the 80s, they, the um, Marcos regime was trying to resolve something that, you know, as a culture, we, we all need water. We need water. And growing cities and things like that, um, you know, have to have water. So we get things like fucking dams that totally ravage the environment. And in this case... Um, the Chico Dam project was set to displace up to and around 100,000 indigenous people. Um, and so uh, one of the Kalinga leaders, uh, the name uh, is, uh, shoot, I, I sort of uh, sort of crossed it out. Anyways, he was killed and by, by the Philippine military for his opposition of the Chico Dam project. And that... Um, uh, first name Makliing, and it was originally called Makliing Day, the celebration of this um, opposed, opposed opposition leader. So this is now has been changed to sort of like erase the government's attempt to like bring that into like a broader understanding or celebration but like i would say neocolonialism they they tried to establish cordillera day um and then the the people renamed makliing day to be the people's cordillera day which is um that has been happening now for essentially 36 years the date was of his death was um april 24th 1980 and so now they celebrate court, the People's Cordillera Day. And it's sad that it has to coincide with this leader's death. But, um, but that's something that we recognize and understand to be the um, solution of choice for, for the um, colonizers is just kill out the opposition. Um, and we see that quite a bit. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's in South America, the resistance to deforestation um, and environmental, you know, mass infrastructure projects that have massive environmental uh, impacts uh, is also leading to people fighting back and being killed as they fight back. Um, You were talking about water. I mean, obviously the water protector thing is maybe in the United States context, the most recent relevant struggle um, to fight back against pipelines. Do we want to talk about that? Yeah, go for it. So yeah, there, uh, another zine in our catalog is called The Front Lines Are Everywhere, which is a um, zine from the water we'll protectors. we get to that one at some point in this podcast thing, but yes. 
So it's the like Water Protectors Legal Defense uh, Organization put this scene out after Standing Rock to talk about the repression that people who were fighting back against the um, Dakota Access Pipeline encountered. Back in 2016, the Standing Rock was kind of the peak of recent resistance um, to these pipelines. And um, indigenous people from all over the country gathered there and set up an encampment and held space and blocked the pipeline. And um, it was very successful. Um, there were lots and lots of people got arrested and lots of law enforcement came and attacked people. This is part of a, a long history that we are not able to get into. I mean, we have not yet mentioned the American uh, Indian movement, AIM, mm-hmm. um, and like resistance that happened around Wounded Knee and Alcatraz and the Trail of Broken Treaties. Like there is a long history of resistance, which the zine um, talks about, um, but that we can't cover in this podcast. Um, but it is incredibly inspiring. And I really think that we should all be challenging ourselves always to learn more about the ways that other people have fought back. In Standing Rock, they at, at one point, the um, government turned fire hoses on people in late November mm-hmm. um, and below freezing temperatures. Um, they also shot people with uh, rubber bullets and um, attacked them. And so a couple of the people who have faced some of the most serious consequences out of Standing Rock our Red Fawn Fallis, who was arrested, I believe, on that night. Um, she was arrested, and she's an indigenous woman. And as happens in many of these cases, um, it is people who are uh, people of color and are already criminalized who suffer the worst consequences for resistance. Right. Um, she was charged with like facing facing down ten years worth of charges. Um, she was already criminalized, so she had a felony record. She had a firearm, uh, they claim, and so they were going to give her 10 years. Um, she was she recently got out after doing 57 months, and she was arrested back in 2016. Um, That's like half that time already, right? Right, yeah, and that was after a plea deal to make a, make a, a lighter uh, sentence for her. Uh, Steve Martinez is an, another guy. He... Uh, his crime uh, wasn't really his crime is resisting a grand jury and refusing to testify. Mm-hmm. Um, on that night of the fire hoses, the police also shot a woman named Sophia Wolanski with rubber bullets, and she was grievously injured. Um, and the police blockade prevented uh, her from being able to get medical attention. Steve got her in his car, drove her to get medical attention, um, and. The, they have come after him. They called him to a grand jury mm-hmm. um, back when that first happened. And they recently called him to another grand jury to try to get him to testify. So right. this guy who like did a, an act of Samaritan, Samaritan, Samaritan. Samaritan act of like helping somebody who was hurt by the police is now um, being put into jail because he refuses to testify mm-hmm. and to help the police hurt more people. Um, he... Uh, got out on April 19th after doing 60 days um, for resisting the grand jury. The second time. Yeah, right. the second time. So the the front lines are everywhere is a really great zine about what like the legal uh, consequences and implications of resistance can mm-hmm. be. Um, they've got a primer in there on grand jury resistance. 
which we could spend an entire podcast talking about, but basically (laughs) don't talk to the police. (laughs) Uh, And if somebody summons you to try to go to the police, you don't have to talk and they will try to make, they could make, try to make you talk by putting you in jail. Um, But we will have your back uh, all across the country if you stand up and refuse to snitch. Hello, this is Ty from the future. I'm going to cut in here because we were able to get someone with direct uh, experience supporting Standing Rock water protectors, Will Parrish. Hello, everyone. My name is Will Parrish. I hail from a Waswas-speaking Ohlone territory in what is known as Santa Cruz, California. I'm a journalist. I've written about social movements, policing, surveillance, uh, struggles against fossil fuel pipelines, and other subjects for The Intercept and The Guardian. I'm also a PhD student in the History of Consciousness program at UC Santa Cruz here in California, uh, currently working on a dissertation. And I'm a a community organizer, um, which for me includes about 15 years of experience with indigenous solidarity politics and struggles here on Turtle Island. Yeah, so um, the struggle against the... This pipeline centered at Standing Rock in 2016 to 17 was uh, a movement that faced a lot of repression while it was most active. Um, I think that's because it uh, challenged aspects of of the state and capital in in particular ways that, you know, um, I think are important to talk about um, because it was an indigenous self-determination struggle. And, um, you know, in the aftermath of Standing Rock, it's also continued to be the case that uh, participants have faced repression in various forms. Um, and so, you know, that those forms of repression have come from both state and private actors. Um, in, in the case of the former, a lot of what's happened in the aftermath of Standing Rock in terms of uh, legal persecution of people, as well as, you know, various lawsuits that are still playing out revolve around events that happened on November 20th, 2016, which a lot of your listeners may recall as the night when police used water cannons to spray uh, water protectors uh, on a freezing night in North Dakota, as well as shot rubber bullets and concussion grenades and other so-called less lethal munitions and caused a lot of injuries of people. Uh, and in the wake of that, that evening, um, a specific water protector named named Sophia Wolanski um, was severely injured. She had her arm blown off by apparently a munition fired by the police, but was accused by the police of blowing her own arm off because they claimed that she was fashioning a improvised explosive device out of a propane canister, um, which you know is I think widely regarded as just like a really absurd story. Uh, so, uh, since then, um, a federal grand jury has subpoenaed someone in an attempt to compel them to testify about what happened that night to Sophia Wolanski, uh, a guy named Steve Martinez. And Steve Martinez has refused to comply with the grand jury. Um, you know, he sees this as a case of political persecution, an effort to breathe oxygen into this ridiculous story that Sophia Wolanski blew her own arm off. And so he's refused to comply with the subpoena. He spent some time in jail earlier this year 
for refusing to, to comply with the grand jury investigation um, because, you know, he did not want to unwittingly contribute uh, to damaging anyone in the movement, talk about anything that happened in the movement as part of this grand jury. Um, meanwhile, Sophia Wolanski has continued to try to gain some measure of justice for what happened to her, uh, has filed a, a civil rights lawsuit. Uh, another civil rights lawsuit has been filed uh, against the police for police brutality um, related to the events of November 20th, 2016. So there are all these you know, active cases playing out in relation to events of that night. And many, many people see the persecution of Steve Martinez as sort of a, a form of retaliation um, in a, you know, because of these lawsuits continuing. Um, the government wants to come after people and send a, send a message about um, their ability to continue harassing people and so forth. So that's one aspect of what continues to play out in relation to Standing Rock in the courts and through uh, you know, various forms of persecution of activists. Um, another arena that is ongoing is through Energy Transfer Partners filing what is often known as a slap suit, um, a lawsuit by a private actor in this case uh, against people involved in a, a political movement in basically an effort to silence their political activities. Um, Energy Transfer Partners filed a federal racketeering lawsuit alleging that uh, Greenpeace and a variety of other environmental organizations were engaged in a cynical conspiracy to manufacture misinformation against energy transfer partners uh, and basically created the struggle at Standing Rock themselves um, out of whole cloth as part of this like cynical profiteering scheme. And so uh, that lawsuit, which you know again is, is a RICO racketeering lawsuit using a law that was originally designed to go after the mob in the 1970s is being used by energy transfer partners to harass uh, all kinds of people who are involved in the, the struggle against Standing Rock, media organizations like Unicorn Riot, uh, the Water Protector Legal Collective, which you know, is the collective of attorneys that defended people in court uh, during the struggle and after the struggle at Standing Rock. You know, all these different Entities and individuals have been subpoenaed as part of part of this racketeering lawsuit, which you know is basically a, a fishing expedition to get as much information as possible about uh, people involved in the movement and impose a financial cost on people for their participation in the movement. So um, that RICO Act lawsuit was, as I said, initially filed in federal court. Uh, it was thrown out of federal court, and Energy Transfer Partners is now pursuing it in North Dakota Superior Court. Uh, and so that remains ongoing. And um, essentially, uh, it's in response to the effectiveness of, of the movement of Standing Rock. Companies like Energy Transfer Partners see themselves sort of as, as leaders of the oil industry, of a certain sector of capital, and they want to exact as much kind of retribution and as high a cost as possible against people who are part of the movement at Standing Rock. It's intense, the amount that's going on uh, with the government trying to, uh, the government and this private, private company trying to shut things down. Can you give us like a framework of what 
Standing Rock, like what the No Dapple campaign achieved, like how much they slowed down and and cost the pipeline, and where that that kind of fight is at generally. Absolutely. Um, yeah, st- the struggle of Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline was really important in, in a certain way, uh, all the, you know, in certain kinds of ways, although it didn't actually achieve the goal of stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline from being built. Um, it was, you know, by certain measures, the largest mobilization of indigenous people in the United States, perhaps in history. Uh, you know, there were over 300 different indigenous nations who planted a flag at Standing Rock um, from different parts of Turtle Islands and uh, other parts of the world. And so, you know, it was this incredible convergence of indigenous people that was, um, that has inspired uh, indigenous people as well as, you know, others who are sympathetic to the struggle um, ever since. And so, you know, one of the legacies of Standing Rock is that it has directly contributed inspiration and and ideas around strategy and tactics to other struggles against pipelines uh, such as the line three pipeline struggle that's playing out right now uh, you know as well as other land defense struggles uh, struggles of for indigenous self-determination so you know, standing rock created a sort of an important legacy in terms of uh, feeding into these other struggles that have come since um, and you know, it was also in itself a culmination of a struggle that's been going on for much longer in various ways. Obviously, it was an indigenous-led struggle. Indigenous people have been uh, fighting for 500 years in this hemisphere. Um, you know, it's for cultural survival, for self-determination. Um, but also, you know, Sand Rock was the high point of a, a struggle against the fossil fuel industry, specifically in the United States. That You know, it was... Um, basically the largest protest of its kind against a fossil fuel installation um, that was being constructed in the U.S. And because of that, you know, it, it dovetails with the broader climate justice movement. And so, you know, Stan Rock has continued to be uh, an inspiration to climate justice activism and struggle um, really all over the world. That's awesome. Um, are there ways that people can get involved in like the continuing support of um, the water protectors who are facing repression still to this day uh, after Standing Rock? Yeah, there definitely are. Um, yeah, one, one way of doing that I, th- I think would be to check out the water protector legal collective, which still is active um, years after the, you know, the frontline aspect of the struggle wrapped up. Um, they're, they have a website and a social media presence that people could look up. I think supporting them is one way to go about it. But also, I think that um, in the spirit of what happened at Standing Rock, I think that there are many other struggles playing out right now, like the struggle at Line 3, that um, in many ways fall in the legacy of what happened at Standing Rock. And... Um, so, you know, one way to answer that question is, is to encourage people to get involved in these related struggles uh, that also involve a fight for indigenous self-determination. It's also a fight against a pipeline, and it's, it's active right now. Um, this summer is sort of the peak of, of mobilization against the Line 3 pipeline. And, the, you know, there are various other pipeline struggles and 
uh, indigenous self-determination struggles uh, that uh, also, you know, are very much uh, connected to the movement at Standing Rock and its legacy that, that people could be involved in. Yeah, um, we, we've been following the Line 3 pipeline um, actions pretty closely, and I'll speak about it a little bit later in our, in our episode here. Um, I also just am reminded of a photo we saw recently of some uh, natural out, like resistance to the pipeline down in Peru, I think it was, like the mm. sloth. Um, like mm. shut down a pipeline by just turning a wheel on the system. Um, yeah. like the headline said, Curious Sloth Shuts Down Pipeline for the Day. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, I don't know, I, I really think I love that like even nature in its, you know, most innocent of forms just <laughs> interrupts that as well. So we can, there's like number of ways that People can um, resist, the, you know, the, the spread of the oil industry, and um, we just have to think of well. Yeah, humans, non-humans, every, you know, everyone can play a part. <laughs> <laughs> so our our podcast is not something that comes out with a quick turnaround. We do monthly episodes, and we're it's mostly. Like cool. kind of examining, uh, like going in depth discussions on on different zines, and so cool. the zine for this month is um, colonization and decolonization by Zigzag, mm. um, and so maybe do you want to talk a little bit more? I know you've kind of touched on it, but um, do you have anything more to say on the like intersection between pipeline resistance, eco defense, and um, you know, decolonization or indigenous sovereignty? Uh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, what I'd, like to, what I'd like to say, I think, is that um, struggles against fossil fuel pipelines are, you know, at, at their best, like in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline struggle, as well as, you know, the struggles against the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, in British Columbia, the Unistoten camp in Northern British Columbia, which is a struggle against pipelines <clears throat> that's led by, you know, Wet'suwet'en people, you know, the line three struggle. Um, all of these struggles grow out of longer term histories of indigenous resistance to settler colonialism and expropriation. And, um, and also with a, you know, they grow out of a particular relationship to, to place and space. And so, um, Pipelines are these massive installations that are built across vast stretches of land and, you know, are contested by various actors. You know, they're, they're fought against by um, sort of, you know, populist farming coalitions in some cases who are trying to protect their private property from seizure by eminent domain, you know, to, to install the pipeline route. Uh, in many cases, pipelines are fought against by environmental nonprofit organizations, like both local and national. But, uh, you know, the tradition of indigenous politics and re indigenous resistance and, and um, the manner in which indigenous people have fought to maintain their land bases and their traditional connections to their land bases has come to the forefront of, of pipeline struggles in a way that I think 
those other forms of resistance to pipelines haven't. Um, I think in many ways because of of the depth of those politics and um, and because of the level of commitment that indigenous people demonstrably have to to their land and um, yeah, so indigenous struggles are about um, in some ways they're about like territory, they're about property, they're also I think about you know, the very meaning of the relationship between human societies and, and the broader uh, ecological worlds in which we are all situated. Um, because, you know, they bring to the forefront questions of, you know, what is our relationship to the water? What is our relationship to the earth? Um, the idea of being a water protector, being a great example of that, um, that was the identity that people adopted at Standing Rock. So, you know, indigenous struggles against pipelines, um, have brought all these things to the forefront. And I think that in some ways that's why they've they've visited, you know, seen so much repression, you know, the repression that we talked about earlier, um, because it is threatening to the powers that be. Uh, it is threatening to the state and capital to have struggles that so deeply uh, challenge notions of things like human supremacy, things like private property gain a foothold and gain popularity. Um, so, but again, you know, this is, this, these are the kinds of struggles indigenous people have been waging for a really long time. You know, it goes deeper than pipeline struggles specifically, but it so happens that right now, um, partly because of the urgency of the climate crisis and the disastrous implications of building all this fossil fuel infrastructure, um, pipelines are a major focus of indigenous struggle right now and of, you know, what is often called an indigenous resurgence. So yeah, those, those are a few thoughts, I think. Yeah. Probably there's a, what you're talking about. Yeah. There's a really interesting way in which the zine or our discussion so far of the zine has gotten into the, the role of settlers or descendants of settlers. You know, the, those of us who are not, um, tied to the land in the way that indigenous people are have been um, and I think about the the kind of the generalization of the struggle around pipelines just that Standing Rock got as big as it did or like mm. some of the solidarity actions with the Unistoten action camp um, involved actions all across Canada where rail lines and, and everything were being shut down and so like this to some degree um, the the micro the pipeline resistance is a microcosm of a larger resistance to like the uh, European based or Western nation state um, mm -hmm. and its imposition on the turtle turtle island. Absolutely, yeah, um, it completely is, and um, I think that Indigenous people have done in the, in the case of the struggles you talked about, you know, a brilliant job of um, making questions about settler colonialism central to the conversations that happen around things like fossil fuel pipelines. Um, yeah, fossil, you know, fossil fuel pipeline, um, you know, it's just a piece of infrastructure and, you know, people can invest all sorts of different means in, in that infrastructure, but, um, because of the kinds of mobilizations we're talking about, um, the conversations we're having are about how these are uh, settler colonial impositions of a private, a private property regime that 
could destroy, you know, the water resources in indigenous people's ancestral territories, for example. So, um, so indigenous people fighting these struggles have done a remarkable job of raising those deeper questions that, that you referred to um, as part of these fights. And uh, again, you know, that's, that's a product of years of organizing and struggle leading up to this. And so um, I think that, uh, you know, questions around um, the settler colonial property regime um, are coming up in many other places as well, um, because, you know, these anti-pipeline struggles are part of a larger family of indigenous struggles. But, uh, you know, because of the nature of the moment we're in, um, with the climate crisis, I think that more attention is also being paid to, to fossil fuel pipelines. But I, yeah, I do think that's a really key point that uh, there is this larger family of indigenous struggles. Uh, pipelines are one part of that. And questions about indigenous self-determination are coming up in, in a lot of other contexts also. Awesome. Yeah, is there anything like that you wanted to um, share any like, interesting things that you're doing that you just wanted to like promote or? Um, I guess what the main thing I'll, I'll give a shout out to is just for anyone who's interested in the writing that I've done related to the different things that we talked about today, they could check out, uh, you know, they could just uh, check out The Intercept or The Guardian and uh, find my author page on, at those publications, um, and I've, I've published under the name Will Parrish, P-A-R-R-I-S-H. Awesome. Okay, thank you so much. Now we'll go back to our discussion. So I would like to talk about uh, two aspects of decolonization uh, as we head towards wrapping up. One is that, um, so we're white, and I imagine a lot of our listeners are also white, uh, why is decolonization something that you should care about? Um, and I know you're listening to this, so you probably already care about it. Uh, but so Ben has been talking about the the water uh, protectors, and that's you know that's great. Um, I love that. I thought that was really cool. And his stuff I don't know about. I'm going to read that scene later. I, I think uh, decolonization. Well, okay, so colonization is a series of interlocking systems. We we've talked about that throughout mm -hmm. this, this episode. Uh, and I think um, back to abolition again, uh, one of the ways Angela Davis always frames prison abolition is that uh, it's a process. It's not something that's just going to happen. And so uh, when we look at decolonization, we can also look at it in the same way uh, where decolonization is such an insurmountable task, such a huge construct and mm -hmm. idea and a dismantling of systems um, that we have to look at it as a process. And why that's something we should care about is because one of those interlocking systems is um, raping the world of natural resources. And thankfully, uh, indigenous people have been fighting against that for years and years. And it's time for us to get with the program to preserve uh, from an environmentalist aspect. Uh, yeah, the, like so currently the treaty people gathering, I know, Ben, um, you'll probably go into this in more detail. Um, but line three, the, the opposition to line three, they have called for not only like there are primarily indigenous um, native American people who are um, 
who are resisting that, but they have called for allies um, to come and help in that resistance movement and um, to to help those indigenous people to take their power back and take that land back. Um, and that is like one of a multitude of ways that you can resist colonization or try to stop things. Like in the Philippines, they go everything from barricading against these projects to actually destroying mines to um, burning agricultural land and palm oil production areas and and dams and things like that and it it goes runs the gamut and they can like the state will call those things violent um, but we hear at least in conversations have talked about violence is the is is uh, uh, something that happens from person to person, and it's actually the state that is is committing more violent acts than than any of these small um, resistance acts could ever could ever think to commit. Um, so yeah, Ben, can you talk talk more about like the treaty people gathering that happened at the beginning of June of um, this year and how that is progressing now? Yeah, so the resistance of Line Three, Line Three is a pipeline. So the the Previously mentioned Dakota Access Pipeline is taking oil from the back-end oil fields in western North Dakota and bringing them, uh, bringing it out to the Gulf. The uh, Line 3 is bringing oil from the Alberta tar sands, which is an environmental calamity in itself mm-hmm. up in Canada. Um, it's bringing that down through um, northern Minnesota, through Wisconsin, under Lake Superior, eventually to connect with other pipelines where there are people resisting down south as well uh, to the Gulf for export. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the uh, there's just so much to talk about. But at the Treaty People Gathering, there were two actions um, that were really, really powerful. Hundreds of people showed up um, and went to these two actions. The first was a public action um, where the easement for the pipeline was crossing the headwaters of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, people did a lot of art there, and there was uh, ongoing occupation and tents. There was a huge, huge chalk mural that was done, and I was looking at pictures of this online. It was beautiful. Like, how they got that done without anybody actually knowing, like, what they were supposed to be doing was amazing looking. Like, it was just a be- beautiful, huge, colorful mural that, ha- that and yeah, that took the entire, like, uh, two-lane or one, you know, one lane each way, um, highway or road that was crossing the, the waters, um, up. It was like the entire width of that and double high. So very beautiful art. Yeah. Yeah. So on the day that that kicked off, the people also did an action at a work site. So this is the place where they were building, I think it was a pumping station. It looked like to continue the to actual build the pipeline, mm-hmm. not just the easement for it. And uh, hundreds of people went there. There were 176 got arrested there. I don't quote me on those numbers, but um, another 60-some were arrested at the other encampment I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that site, people locked down to machinery. The The police or the workers immediately vacated, and the, the space was kind of left empty for the day, mm-hmm. um, which was awesome because no work got done. We slowed down Ooh. the pipeline. Hell for yeah. multiple days. It was like, thir- that was held for, what, 30 hours um, before CBP like was able to, or uh, police, sheriffs, whoever the hell went in. All kinds um, of law enforcement. 
Yeah, I was was able to actually like get present the space back to the workers. Um, so thirty hours worth of work was um, was set back in that in that particular action. So at the the worksite action, um, there was uh, a lot of that nonviolent resistance. People just locked down to machines. People held the space. People. Um, made soft barricades um, to, and there was there was also like a boat that was brought in. There were some structures that were brought in and set up to try to um, prevent uh, the police from getting in there. Um, and so, my understanding at this point, and, and this might be incomplete knowledge, but there there have been other arrests since. There have been other times that the police have attacked these protests, um, but the charges so far are fairly controlled trespassing charges they're not as the situations are not escalating in the way that they did in standing rock where people were starting to get charged with more serious things um the most serious charges that i've seen come out of the line three uh in recent uh times is two and this is really important a couple of workers were running a sex trafficking ring. Mm-hmm. And so that's a thing that always comes along with these pipeline projects. Mm-hmm. You go to a, a, den- a sparsely populated part of the country, bring in hundreds of workers who um, have no connection to the community there and are, you know, colonizers and the worst kind of colonizers um, come in and violence against women skyrockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, these... Uh, workers were on the side also running a sex trafficking ring and they got caught and so, so don't believe the youtube ad if you're listening happen to be listening to this on youtube where that features enbridge and discusses these line three workers as being nice people just uh yeah elsa your face <laughs> i was furious when i heard that um on on youtube the other day don't fucking believe that shit um that's bullshit i mean there are certainly workers who are just who are just doing it to be able to to make a living um which this is a because it is such a uh, important to the capitalist states um project that they they pay very highly um for this type of work but but that um, land is indigenous land and those workers are trespassing on that land and they're destroying yes. land that is not theirs and what they're doing is uh is a problem is there's no friendly no friendly person comes into your land and fucks it up and poisons you that's not a friendly person but we have seen we have seen workers like stop and quit in solidarity and start joining the um the resistance like in those ways because they have been educated because they have seen the work that the the you know uh, pipeline resistors have done to to try to stop this from happening and so that's like a beautiful outcome that we hope will happen more yeah i think that's that is a a very difficult needle to thread um but when people are successful at it i'm thinking about like uh resistance to the deforestation in the pacific northwest and judy berry forming uh alliances between like labor struggles of the logging people and the um, forest protection struggles of the environmentalists. This is back, I think, in the 90s. Um, that shut things down. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that, that it's going to take. And the idea that, you know, the, the capitalist system and the, the democratic government of these states deprives rural people of opportunities to live in the first place, destroys their economies, puts them, makes them precarious in the first place, which is what makes them 
uh, makes it possible to recruit them into these acts of violence and these acts of uh, colonization. You know, I, I came here uh, to America. My ancestors came here as poor Irish and Norwegian immigrants who were willing to come and play the role of settling this land and taking this land from indigenous people and taking this land based on the fact that they didn't have anything back in where they were from in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so it is always like the poor and the working class people who are pushed against each other by the ruling class and the bulk of the violence is being done on that kind of level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just a side note for the audience, um, we're sorry that we're just uh, three, two, two and a half white people here talking about this. We certainly like tried um, reaching out to a, n- a number of different um, people and organizations to try to bring um, an, a Native person who actually has better history and understanding and lived experience to this conversation. Um, but like Ben said, a number of them are out on the front lines actually um, committing, you know, doing doing this work right, committing their time to this work right now. Um, so, you know, most most of those people were unable to, to, to be present today and we totally get that. So we wanted to still bring this issue to light and talk about it um, even uh, with, without them. But there are tons and tons of groups that you can go and research and get to know. Um, I would highly encourage trying to make it up to any of the pipeline resistance camps that exist um, so that you can better familiarize yourself with with what is happening and um, be able to support to support in in whatever way you can. It's a great time. thing to take away from this zine for me is that um, decolonization is one of the grand schemes goals and things mm-hmm. we're looking to do mm-hmm. uh, and so it, it helps to frame actions and activism in that lens as well to feel part of the, the greater uh, indigenous struggle and also reverting back to uh, pre-colonization I guess no, I mean colon- settler colonialism is not a discrete uh, part of the capitalist imperialist project, um, but is rather woven throughout it. And decolonization in the same way should not be a discrete project that we engage in, but rather a practice that informs any and every form of resistance that um, goes on the same way that like anti-black racism is not a discrete part of the capitalist system Mm -hmm. of racial capitalism, but is woven throughout it. And so um, like anti-racism needs to inform everything that we do, um, to preserve like our own lives on this planet. And so like, we have a role in this, um, whoever you are, we are a part of it and we can, 
um, stop being a part uh, that is contributing to the destruction and become a part that is resisting the destruction. I just realized I'm wearing my shirt today. <laughs> That's like an exact... Uh, okay, it says white settler colonialism and capitalism are destroying the planet, not poor people of color. That's the fundamental thing. I mean, that's the broad white supremacy. Like, I just talking about, like, the problem of overpopulation in Africa and Mexico and whatever is nonsense. <laughs> like, Fuck it off. is, yeah. That is a you process, that is a eugenicide. It's eugenics, it is a process of saying who deserves to live on the resources that are becoming increasingly scarce and if we allow the current system to continue to function and operate the answer to that question is very few people yeah so for the stop line three it's just stopline three.org um there's also the treaty people gathering um you can look that up um, and for the ongoing stuff with um, Standing Rock, uh, supportstevemartinez.com. Uh, we expect he's probably going to be facing some more consequences. I think broader um, resources on just uh, decolonization and indigenous resistance, warriorpublications.wordpress.com. That's where Zigzag puts a lot of stuff out. I'm sure you can get this zine from there. Um, and then also um, some friends from flagstaff or uh formerly known as flagstaff arizona um on uh talahoan land i believe is how you pronounce it uh indigenous org. um they do some really uh amazing uh mutual aid work down in the the southwest specifically but also uh lots of really powerful zines and resources that kind of apply to these issues more broadly and if by any chance you have any interest in exploring more about what um, is done in the history of um, decolonization and in the Philippines, I have a couple of resources for you as well. So PM Press put out a dope-ass book that my housemate Kit got me. Um, it is called Pangaya and the Decolonizing Resistance. Uh, colon, Anarchism in the Philippines. Which is to say, just a, a nod to like our politics as anarchists like really aligns well with decolonization and uh, aiding in resistance um and we see like in my mind in, the, in reading this scene i was like oh these are just like all the decolonization is all things that we uh, that i at least think as an anarchist should happen no matter what like uh, whether you're indigenous or not so that's like a really great book if you like reading books um, as well. That, that's by Bas Umali, and um, they also belong to uh, an anarchist collective in the Philippines. So you can check out writings by him and um, a bunch of other people at Bandilang E-Team. That's spelled B-A-N-D-I-L-A-N-G-I-T-I-M dot noblogs dot org. Um, so check that out. You can, you can read a lot of really cool articles. Um, but yeah, so there's, those are two resources to help you in your awesome exploration of the Philippines. Sounds like that's all we've got on colonization and decolonization, a manual for, uh, 
Indigenous liberation in the 21st century. Thanks both to Ben and Elsa for coming on the show, and thanks again to everyone listening. Next month and the month after that, so August and September, get ready. We'll be discussing uh, Blood in My Eye by George Jackson, which is linked at mkelitsupply.com under this month's episode if you'd like to read along. It's a pretty long one, um, and we um, have a number of currently... Uh, captive voices that will be sharing their um, perspective on that particular zine. Um, get yeah, get get into it. Get please do read ahead, and we'll see you next month for that one. Just as a reminder, this podcast is produced for you, lovely listeners, totally free. We collect the funds you, you give us solely to continue the work we do for our Zines to Prisoners project. of the money you give us is used to cover the cost of the project, mainly to purchase the paper, ink, and envelopes needed to get radical reading materials into the hands of prisoners. Not one of us, not even your favorite host, that's me, pockets even one single dollar. In fact, we're investing our own money and time to make sure no zine request goes unfilled. Please consider giving whatever you can, and if you can't give money, we also have tasks that can be done locally or remotely please just email me at podcast at mkelitsupply.com and we'll connect you in whatever way you are called to support. Other projects our members are involved in include Abolish MKE, a news website that exposes the bad carceral shit happening in Wisconsin. Find it at abolishmke.com or on Instagram at abolish.mke. Black and Pink Milwaukee, a prisoner support nonprofit focusing on LGBTQ and HIV-positive captives. Find them on Facebook at MKE Black and Pink. Forum for Understanding Prisons, a nonprofit doing research on Wisconsin prisons and advocacy for people held within. Visit prisonforum.org for more. Please share this podcast with others. We're available on Stitcher, Castbox, Spotify, Google, iTunes, and soon-to-be YouTube. Please rate and subscribe. See you next month!